This is the Room Now podcast, and you're listening to highlights from the ACR 2020 virtual meeting. Our faculty reporters have been doing videos and recordings so that you can stay up to date. Hope you enjoy these and our panel discussions. Hi, I'm Dr. Janet Pope, a reporter at Room Now. My Twitter handle is at Janet Burdope. I'd like to talk about one of the very interesting plenary uh, sessions. So this is abstract number 1441. It's by Richard Fury. And as any of you watching the uh, meeting um, of the ACR virtual meeting know, uh, uh, Dr. Fury has been a wonderful advocate and uh, author on multiple SLE trials. So this is looking at the already published Belimumab uh, trial in lupus nephritis and giving us more results. So what's really interesting about this trial is number one, it allowed standard of care of active lupus nephritis. So a lot of patients were on mycophenolate mofetil, but you could have also been induced by cyclophosphamide. Number two, it was new lupus nephritis or an active recurrence. Number three, they cut down on prednisone so that if by 24 weeks, your prednisone dose was greater than 10 milligrams a day, you were considered a non-responder. What's also important about this study is they went to 104 weeks because things like proteinuria don't resolve over time. So they looked at partial responder and complete renal responder. As I say, some of the data are already published. Then they looked in the subsets of drugs that were being used, the subsets of race and other subsets such as lupus nephritis. And slam dunk, belimumab, 10 milligrams IV, Q monthly, was better added to standard of care than standard of care alone, uh, with a minor exception of uh, lupus nephritis class five, where it wasn't as big as slam dunk. What's the take home? Number one, in lupus nephritis, we need to do better. And this is uh, an adjunct to care that can help our patients. Number two, I would advocate that we can have belimumab reimbursed um, in our communities as it is an expensive but highly effective drug. And number three, I believe we can uh, rationalize that this would also help um, the same way if it was belimumab sub-Q as the drug is now available, both IV and sub-Q. Please follow us at Room Now and enjoy ACR 2020. Thank you. Hi, everyone from uh, ACR Convergence 2020. This is Dr. Robert Chow coming to you live uh, from Room Now. Uh, today, I wanted to talk to you about uh, specifically enthesitis. Uh, and enthesitis and psoriatic arthritis. Um, as you know, enthesitis can be difficult to diagnose and assess. Uh, we're sort of used to the old, but some would say tried and true method of poking at an enthesis point and simply asking if it hurts. Uh, the problem though lies in a few things. Um, number one is how accurate that uh, method really is. And especially in the smaller enthesis points, unlike the Achilles, uh, for example. And number two, uh, there's been a rise of musculoskeletal ultrasound, uh, which actually provides us with much more objective data. Uh, and it's really useful, especially in patients with subclinical disease. And number three, uh, evaluating enthesitis objectively can be very helpful for us in rheumatology, especially 
with our patients who have uh, concurrent pain syndromes such as fibromyalgia. So I wanted to share with you a few abstracts today uh, dealing with uh, enthesitis in particular. Uh, the first one's 1853. Uh, this was a pretty interesting uh, abstract in the gut microbiome uh, and differences in that in, in patients with axial spinal arthritis. Uh, they had 33 patients and they found some significant differences overall in the gut microbiome and patients with AXPA versus healthy. Also found differences in inactive uh, patients, uh, AXPA patients versus active. And very interestingly, also uh, gut microbiome differences in patients with enthesitis and also radiographic versus non-radiographic AXPA. I think uh, it's very interesting data, very useful data. Uh, but it continues to beg the question, um, what do we do about the microbiome? You know, is this something we can target? Um, because already some studies have shown that diet alone uh, does not change the diversity of the gut microbiome. Uh, the next abstract is 1552. Uh, this is a study showing improvements in ultrasound enthesitis uh, with biologic DMAR treatment. Um, had about 25 patients. Uh, with active disease or either starting or switching biologic DMARDs and the ultrasounds of the enthesis were performed at baseline three months and six months. Um, results show there was improvement of ultrasound enthesitis at those time periods um, and the clinical activity outcomes were associated with the decrease in enthesitis counts. I think uh, studies like this continue to show the validity of uh, musculoskeletal ultrasound, especially in our everyday use. Um, the next study is 1543. Uh, this is very interesting. It showed the importance of ultrasound uh, in our pediatric population. Uh, this is one of the first studies to evaluate uh, joints and enthesis in that population. And this was in children with psoriasis. Um, this, this had 49 patients. And the ultrasound abnormalities were uh, higher in the symptomatic group, in the, in, especially in the synovitis enthesitis. They found a difference of 77% versus 39%. Um, and was also, they found very useful in, in the detection of subclinical involvement. And lastly, uh, was actually an oral presentation by Dr. Eder. Uh, this was abstract zero, uh, 2021, and this was the duet study which is a novel sonographic scoring system for enthesitis uh, to help with psoriatic arthritis diagnosis. Um, this focused on scoring with the following uh, factors at 16 sites, um, and it included hypoechogenicity, ec erosions, uh, thickening of the enthesis, Doppler signal, uh, bursitis, enthesophytes, and calcifications. Um, overall, there was good agreement uh, between sonographers uh, the thickness measurement and total score showed uh, good inter-rater uh, agreement. The lowest agreement was for uh, hypoechogenicity and thickening, uh, which kind of varied by site. Um, I think overall, these were very promising studies, um, especially for the evaluation of enthesitis. Uh, I think as we know more about the evaluation, the recognition and diagnosis of enthesitis, uh, in an objective matter, especially with real-time, um, you know, objective data with uh, radiographic evidence, um, this will be very useful for us and very pragmatic for the rheumatologist who who's treating the uh, psoriatic arthritis patient. So, thank you very much for tuning in. Again, this is Dr. Robert Chow coming to you from Room Now uh, at ACR Convergence 2020, and uh, please follow Room Now for coverage of ACR 2020 and follow me on Twitter at Dr. RBC. Thanks.
Hi, ACR Convergence. I'm Dr. Rachel Tate coming to you from my home in West Palm Beach, Florida. I am honored today to be interviewing Dr. Irene Blanco, Professor of Medicine and Associate Dean of Diversity Enhancement at Albert Einstein College of Medicine, Montefiore Medical Center in the Bronx. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Blanco. I really appreciate it. No, thanks for having me. Of course. Well, it's been such a busy ACR. And I, I wanted to touch on something that it's near and dear to your heart. And obviously, diversity and inclusion issues really pepper the landscape, I think, in medicine, and especially right now. And you've done some wonderful work regarding these issues, predominantly in rheumatology. Can you share with us some of your findings? Sure. Um, my focus in rheumatology is predominantly on education and how we can start to think about addressing these issues through our fellowship curricula. Um, you know, it's my point of view that this is literally the last time that we have our trainees in a training setting where they can be in a safe space to really think about and investigate and talk about these issues, right? And it's also a place where we can correct anything that we see before we have to kind of depend on them to look for the CME um, in order to address these issues, right? And so, um, you know, I presented two ACRs back and then last ACR. So we've done a couple of needs assessments. So the first one was a needs assessment of the fellows, right? So like, what are they seeing in terms of this landscape? What are they talking about in their fellowship programs, et cetera? Um, and we did it as a qualitative survey because sometimes these, better said qualitative interviews, because these issues can be delicate, can be really hard to address and oftentimes the complexity of the issue isn't grasped sufficiently in a survey right so to really get to the meat of the matter we did these focus groups um and it's funny because you know i do a lot of sort of iterative stuff in qualitative medicine in qualitative interviewing and we could have probably stopped at the first interview because they were so similar one after the other so number one the fellows are seeing issues of disparate care Poor patients are not getting the care that they need. Black and brown patients are not getting the care that they need. Access is a huge issue. But other than them sort of talking about it and trying to grapple with it by discussing it amongst themselves, there's not really a formal structure through their programs to address these issues, right? So program directors are not talking about it. And Rarely, but on occasion, they're seeing their faculty not be ideal role models, right? So how it leaves them with the sense of, well, how do I address this? They're powerless, um, but at the same time, because of that like hidden curriculum and by, you know, as a faculty member, the things that we leave unsaid, a lot of them start to think, well, is this rheumatology, right? Like. These social aspects of medicine, like, you know, if you were to put this, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing a quote, like, if you were to put this in the curriculum, what would you take out? So there's not a sense of, well, if I really want to take good care of my lupus patients, I need to address their psychosocial needs in addition to their pure biochemical, you know, pathological, pathophysiological needs, right? Yeah. And so it's this disjointedness of, you know, well, if I, I address their poverty and their access and all this stuff, I, I don't have time to think about rheumatology. I'm like, no, the two have to come together. 
And so then last year we presented the needs assessment from the program directors. And you know, the program directors are saying very similarly the same things, right? That they don't have much of this content in the curriculum. They don't know how to teach the curriculum necessarily themselves. They don't have faculty that know how to assess the curricula. So they need resources, right? They're like, I need resources. Help me figure out how to teach this to my fellows so that we can all move the needle, right? And actually address a lot of the issues um, that our patients have. And so that's sort of in the midst of where we are right now, thinking, okay, we're gonna need probably a 1.0 and a 2.0 kind of curriculum, because it seems like we really need to train the trainers to a certain extent, right? Um, on how to have these courageous conversations because potentially there's going to be some introspection on the programs, right? So like once we start to talk about this landscape, then we start to look at our own individual programs and saying, well, are we doing enough, right? And people have to have the courage to have that conversation. Well, and I'm sure you've done beta testing <laughs> even in your own institution. I mean, that's that's the importance of education. And so. And I know that you've kind of touched on this a little bit, but kind of where do you think the rheumatologist role in, in and outside of academia really is? You know, I mean, I think that when we talk about, for example, health disparities and access issues, I think we have so much data, right? We have a lot of data in terms of RA, OA, lupus, even if you look at a lot of the abstracts that were presented this week, right? Dr. Goodman um, presented that black and brown patients are not getting arthroplasty at the same rates. Potentially uh, racial and ethnic minorities are not faring as well. Um, there was a great abstract on patients not feeling, providers not feeling comfortable assessing lupus rashes and skin of color, right? So we really need to think about, you know, what, what are we teaching our fellows? How do we open up access for our patients? How do we bring the two together, right? How do we create those resources? Um, and I mean, it's hard, it's hard. I, I think there are lots of conditions where the disparities are very well described in and out of rheumatology. But so it's to the individual practitioners in that specialty to really address those issues, right? Like. I can't leave it to primary care to talk about lack of access to transplant, for example, right, for black and brown patients. I can't leave it to primary care to be the only ones to think about my patients not getting knee replacements. I can't leave it to primary care to think about, you know, lupus patients not doing as well as they should be doing, right? Like we have to take the onus of our disparities and therefore really start to think about the, what, what are we gonna implement, right? What are our interventions? I mean, advocacy is so important. Yeah. I, I think that's something that we um, at Room Now feel really strongly about as well as the rest of the community. So I really thank you for honing in on that. Um, we have just a little bit of time left and I wanted to ask you more about the hub. Can you tell us a little bit about what's new from the ACR equity and inclusion hub this year or so that it's I, new this year? <laughs> well, it's brand new, you know, I mean, the hubs 
in general have really expanded and it was a way to really get other sections of the community that would normally find each other right at the exhibit hall typically meet me by booth six right <laughs> like um that now it was just to find these meeting spaces glorified breakout rooms if you will um so, and you know, this year is the first year that we have an equity and inclusion hub, which was fantastic. We were able to have a DNI um, town hall where we could just listen to members, right, and co convergence attendees to what are their thoughts in this space? You know, what do they want to see happen? Um, we had a great debrief on one of our speakers, Dr. Mark Neve, um, on implicit bias. He's a, an incredible speaker and a huge resource. So I think for the people that were able to speak with him in the hub, that was a really enriching experience. Um, but at the same time, we were able to post a lot of resources. So for people that are really interested in thinking about how to move the needle in terms of DNI initiatives for their programs, for their residencies, for their divisions, there's tons of resources there, um, things to educate yourself, things to use to look at your own curricula and the things that, you, the content that you're teaching um, and ideas on how we can better assess our trainees, how we can write more equitable, right? Letters of recommendation and letters of support for people to make sure that we're not necessarily using gendered language, et cetera. So there's a huge span of resources that I think um, Dr. Blazer and I are really, really proud of. Um, and I just, I'm, I'm hoping that people will make um, use of them as, as they move into these spaces. Absolutely. And these, just for clarification, I know I can download them now. I'm hoping they'll be available after the conference as well. I believe so. I believe the hubs are going to stay up for a, a while longer. And so, you know, there's, there. If you can't download them today, um, ideally within the next few weeks, they should still be up. Okay. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy day, your busy schedule. I know what it's like to be working remotely and being at home and listening to ACR as well. So I just, I really thank you so much. Um, and for more news, be sure to go to roomnow.com and please follow me on Twitter at up to tape. Thank you so much. Thank you. This is Dr. Catherine Dow reporting for Room Now. I'm at the ACR 2020 Convergence meeting and it is currently Monday. Um, there's a great abstract. It's a late breaking abstract. It's abstract L04 and was presented by Dr. Kevin Winthrop. And the reason why I like this abstract was they were following patients who were on tofacitinib. These are rheumatoid arthritis patients taking tofacitinib. And this is a post hoc analysis in from phase one through phase four trials and how these patients do with the flu. Okay. So what they did was they followed these patients. There's almost 8,000 patients. And these were patients who were on tofacitinib, five or 10 milligrams BID as monotherapy in combination with other DMARDs or um, being compared to adalimumab, placebo, or methotrexate. And they followed these patients for 14 to 15 flu seasons. And they found that actually 
it's no different whether or not you're on tofacitinib versus placebo, adalimumab, or methotrexate. So the rate of the flu is the same. And the majority of cases, about two-thirds of cases, were actually very mild, moderate cases in 34%, and severe cases in 3%. Now, about 1.8% of patients on tofacitinib actually had serious flu symptoms. Um, and the average dose was basically five milligrams BID uh, in six patients and 10 milligrams BID in two patients. There was two deaths, one in each five milligram and the 10 milligram uh, dose. And both of them died from H1N1 flu. Now, this is the part that I found very interesting is that tofacitinib was actually continued in 70% of the patients. About 30% of the patients stopped their medicine, and on average, they would stop it for about 11 days. But in the end, there was no difference whether you continue it to stop it. So for me, if a patient has the flu, and this is confirmed flu, not necessarily other respiratory viruses, there's really no need to stop tofacitinib based on this abstract presented from Dr. Kevin Winthrop. So hope that changes your practice. Follow me on Twitter at kdow. 2011. This is Dr. Catherine Dow for Room Now. Hi, I'm Dr. Janet Pope on Monday at the virtual ACR 2020, welcoming you to At Room Now. I'd like to talk about osteoarthritis. There was a really a lot going on today on osteoarthritis. It's almost the bell of the ball. Um, so the first abstract number 1650, it was a really neat trial, a small but interesting trial, a double-blind randomized controlled trial to look for primary knee osteoarthritis comparing intraarticular steroids with methylprednisolone acetate at 40 milligrams plus one cc of lidocaine versus two cc's of lidocaine. They gave the preliminary analysis. They planned 32 patients, but they have 27 already with very strong results. As you might suspect, it was mostly men and they looked at the knee injury and osteoarthritis outcome score or KOOS. And already with only 27 patients, the p-value was strong 0.007. What improved pain, function and quality of life? The other neat part was that this was a factorial design. So they also randomized patients to some kind of uh, social uh, media intervention and maybe a wearable device. They haven't reported on that part, but the reason I chose this trial is it shows IA steroids are better than lidocaine alone, number one. Number two, it also showed that in a small trial in clinical care, you can do uh, a trial like this, but you can also answer another question and we'll find out if um, people move more, if they're given sort of cues to move. The next study, just in brief, was number 1652. And what it was, was looking at two cohorts of primary knee osteoarthritis, again, mostly men with a large N, almost 800 patients. And what they did was they were looking at patients who got intraarticular steroid injection of the knee or hyaluronic acid visco supplementation of the knee. And they looked at two questions. Is there more x-ray progression 
leading to knee replacement if you received one injection or one course of either or multiple injections. And the bottom line, fortunately for us and our patients, is that there is no difference um, of x-ray progression or uh, worsening your knee OA comparing IA steroids to IA viscoelastics. I think it's an important take-home message. The next one was can we, if we lose weight, will we help knee osteoarthritis? That is in the ACR recommendations and it is well known. So this was an interesting little study, preliminary results number 1656, looking at bariatric surgery and um, offering patients either bariatric surgery or a consideration for a knee replacement for the morbid obese patients who had significant knee osteoarthritis. Although not randomized and the ethics of randomizing would be difficult, uh, it does trend that um, if you get bariatric surgery, your knee OA does improve a bit. So that's another benefit for those patients. The final one, number 1649, was looking again at intraarticular steroid injections and doing a gait analysis. And the bottom line was in this study, uh, it looked like quadriceps was better off if you had an IA steroid for primary knee osteoarthritis and your gait did improve. So I think the totality of the benefit are that we have things to offer our patients, including intraarticular steroids for knee osteoarthritis. Thank you and please follow us at room now. Hi, good afternoon from the final day of ACR Convergent. Here I'm Dr. Dine, Eric Dine coming from Baltimore, Maryland, reporting for Room Now. Uh, today we heard from a bunch of the late breaking abstracts that came through um, uh, and were very important to include into the ACR program this year. So I'm going to talk about the poster L01, the uh, one of the late breaking abstracts on COVID risk, which we saw was uh, one of the main themes of the, the uh, late breaking, just make the cut abstracts. So zero uh, one is from MGH and it's looking at the outcomes of patients with rheumatic disease with COVID, obviously uh, highly relevant to us. One of the biggest questions that we um, are asked by our patients is how, what the risks are and, and how they do compared to the general population. We had seen previously from the general rheumatology um, uh, uh, literature that patients did about as well uh, as the general population, but um, we've been waiting, trying to collect some more information. We've heard some mixed information over the course of the, the um, conference thus far. So looking at the study, this is out of MGH. Uh, it's from uh, their larger hospital association, so included both MGH and surrounding hospitals, including community and longitudinal clinics. The study is from January 30th, when COVID first became relevant in Boston, to July 16th of this year. And they were looking at all COVID-confirmed cases, so they had to have uh, a positive test result for inclusion. The study was done using multivariable Cox proportional hazard regression, they studied 143 rheumatic disease patients that were um, had a positive COVID test. These patients were 76% female, mean age of 60 years old, and they uh, they selected 688 matched comparators. This is out of a, a picture of a total of 16,000 positive 
COVID cases. Uh, so we had 140 rheumatic patients with 680 uh, com comparisons. They um, did a good job of matching for age, for gender. Uh, it was notable that the Charleston comorbidity index was higher in the rheumatic disease patients. What diseases were, were present in the patients that had a COVID diagnosis that had a history of rheumatic diseases? It was most commonly rheumatoid arthritis. Lupus was 19% uh, and a smattering of our other diagnoses as well. 36% of patients were on glucocorticoids, 21% on hydroxychloroquine, 29% were on at least one biological DMARD, 31% on at least one conventional synthetic DMARD. The results showed that rheumatic diseases had a higher unadjusted risk of mechanical ventilation compared with comparators. That was a hazard ratio of 1.75. But once you do all of the adjustments uh, for variables, so adjustments for race, smoking, comorbidity index, there's no significant difference in um, higher risks of hospitalizations, intensive care unit admissions, mechanical ventilation, or death in rheumatic disease. How do we interpret this? I think it's hard to say. Uh, so again, the global registry um, has been leading to the, the information that I've been providing my patients that, that patients with rheumatic diseases seem to do about as well as the general population. Uh, this, I think, overall supports it. We find that you know, our patients do tend to have more comorbidities than the average population, at least with, with this um, population and the matched controls. Uh, and because of comorbidities, they tend to do uh, at least be mechanically ventilated more often. But once we adjust out the risk, any increased risk appears to balance out uh, in this abstract. Uh, I think it's it's unfortunate with the with the high numbers of COVID that we are starting to get good analyses of lots of numbers of patients, and we have uh, 680 patients here. Uh, so we're starting to collect big numbers of patients with COVID diagnoses. Uh, even with uh, rare autoimmune diseases. Uh, but we are still affected by the fact that these are real world uh, data. They, there's no way to control this information because uh, of the nature of uh, pandemic research. We also know that the behaviors are not controlled. This is not an ideal study. Um, there's no way to really control for patient and individual behavior. And we know that from some of our other late-breaking abstracts. Um, abstract two showed that um, patients change their behavior uh, and they, the patients on biologic tend to stay indoors more often. We know from abstract five that they tend to make a lot of medication adjustments that weren't, um, um, the, the, didn't go through the physicians. So there's just a lot of, a lot of noise here, a lot of patient behavior uh, societal behavior that it's hard for us to adjust for. But I think overall, this will help me to talk to my patients about what their risk is, let them know that there may be you know, some signals um, of comorbidities leading to higher rates of complications with COVID, which we knew. Um, but in general, if they take, you know, they should take COVID precautions seriously as per the CDC recommendations. But, but the data is still supportive that they do about as equally as the general population. This is Dr. Eric Dine with uh, Room Now reporting from ACR Convergence, final day. Thank you very much for your time.